Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Piki mai kake mai, a big welcome to our changing world. Ko Alison Balance Tene. Coming up on the show, we'll find out how introduced social wasps are in the genomic spotlight. But first, ice. Last week's issue of the prestigious international science journal Nature was chock a block with papers about Antarctica. Its past, the present, and its possible futures depending on what happens with climate change over the next few years and decades. The headlines were full of the attention-grabbing news of just how much ice Antarctica has lost in the last 25 years, but there was plenty of other research and opinions in the journal as well. To find out some more about the state of Antarctica and its ice, let's head to Victoria University of Wellington, and more precisely the Antarctic Research Centre, to catch up with geologist Rob Mackay and ice expert Nick Gollidge. The paper that was most sort of dramatic was talking about this loss of nearly three trillion tonnes of ice from Antarctica in the last 25 years. Um, in many ways it was an update on previous studies, so this isn't the, sort of the first time we've heard about um, mass loss from Antarctica. What was new here was that they were bringing this uh, time series of data right up to the present day, so uh, 2017. And what they showed was that over that 25-year period from 1992 uh, through to last year, the rate of ice loss uh, has increased by a factor of four. And actually, even in the last decade, there's been a a factor of three increase um, in in that rate of, of loss. So that's a huge acceleration, and any system that's accelerating is... um, going to be a little bit uh, worrying. And obviously that melting ice has implications for global sea level? That's correct. So the ice that's being lost is coming from the ice sheet, uh, the grounded ice sitting above sea level, so it's directly contributing to uh, sea level rise. But of course the meltwater also affects the ocean circulation, which in turn also affects the atmosphere. So there's a whole lot of complexity in terms of the, uh, the impacts of this melting. We all learn in school about the contradiction that is Antarctica, that it's the driest continent on Earth, yet it holds 70% of the world's fresh water. That water falls as snow, and over hundreds of thousands of years it has compressed and created a sheet of ice that almost completely covers the rocky continent of Antarctica. This Antarctic ice sheet is nearly twice the size of Australia, and up to five kilometres thick in places. If it all melted, it would raise mean global sea level by about 58 metres. This is an important concept, as scientists tend to talk about the amount of ice loss as its sea level rise equivalent. Crucially, the Antarctic ice sheet is actually made up of two ice sheets, which are quite different from each other, and this has important consequences for how they react to a changing climate. The larger East Antarctic ice sheet is the big bulge lying to the east of the Transantarctic Mountains, and it includes the South Pole. Here, the ice sheet is sitting on land, 
and it's thought to be relatively stable. The smaller West Antarctic ice sheet includes Marie Birdland and the Antarctic Peninsula, and it is a marine-based ice sheet. It's up to two and a half kilometres thick, and much of it lies below sea level, but it still sits on the seafloor. The West Antarctic ice sheet is the little brother. It's, it's dynamic, it's a little bit unruly. It has about five metres of, of sea level equivalent locked up in it, and it tends to behave a bit more erratically. Uh, so this is the one that we're all watching. This is the one that's grounded below sea level um, in a large part. So it's the one that's most vulnerable to warming oceans. The East Antarctic ice sheet is a lot more stable. It flows more slowly, um, but it contains a huge volume of ice. So although it's less dynamic, we're still kind of interested in what it's doing because it has the potential to contribute even more to sea level rise. You mentioned the word grounded there. Can you explain that? The ice that's grounded is ice that's resting on bedrock. And in Antarctica, we have ice that's resting on bedrock but then flows into the ocean. And as it flows into the ocean, it thins and goes afloat. So then we have these floating ice shelves. So we have a system where we have uh, grounded ice that's held back to some extent by that friction as it flows across the bedrock. Uh, Once it goes afloat, it's only got water underneath it. And so these ice shelves don't have any basal friction. They they sort of drag against the sides of the the embayment that they're, they're usually confined in. But other than that, they're fairly unconstrained. So they tend to be thinner, they flow faster, um, but they hold back the grounded ice. So they're really important in that respect. So they're a bit of a plug. They are a plug, yeah. And as well as this ice sheets and the ice shelves, there's also sea ice. Now that's a completely different phenomenon, isn't it? Sea ice is one of the most important features because over the course of a season, it doubles the size of the continent, the amount of white on the planet. So, and, And that... Sea ice is also connected to the ice shelves, so the water that circulates under an ice shelf becomes super cold, and it comes back out super cold and creates more sea ice. So it's a whole integrated system. Without the sea ice, um, we have major implications for the ice sheets. There'll be more warm waters coming up next to the ice sheets, acting to melt them quicker. So they act as almost a protective apron for the ice shelves and the ice sheets behind it. We hear a lot about sea ice disappearing in the Arctic. In the Antarctic, we've had a few years with more sea ice than normal and then that has changed a little bit recently, hasn't it? Yes, that's correct. So we've had several decades of increasing sea ice, particularly in the Ross Sea region, which could be a function of changing atmospheric circulation, particularly to the the ozone hole that changed the circulation around Antarctica that can push the sea ice further north and that creates open water near the continent that then freezes again, so that creates a sort of sea ice factory. Um, as the ozone hole repairs, we expect that process may slow down. Um, another thing is that there's actually meltwater coming off the continent, so that is fresher, and because it's fresher, it creates sea ice much more easily than seawater, because seawater freezes about minus 2 degrees Celsius, freshwater at about zero. So again, it's, it's one whole system. But then events like the last two years, we've had record lows in the Ross Sea, so we've had this several decades of building up increasing sea ice extent, and then two years in a row where it's been absolute record lows. And I've just been down there in a research vessel. We spent half a million dollars on an icebreaker this year that we didn't need because we saw no sea ice at all. To some extent what's happening is that the the ice shelves, the floating ice, are being melted underneath by the, the warm ocean. Um, so as they, as they thin, that encourages the grounded ice to then flow faster um, to basically sort of fill up those ice shelves again. So they they then start melting um, and that sort of 
perpetuates this sort of um, this cycle of ongoing melt. At the moment, there's not really a whole lot of surface melting in Antarctica. There is in the peninsula, but um, there's not a lot of surface melt from warm air temperature, uh, which is kind of different to the to the Arctic and you know the margins of the Greenland ice sheet, where a lot of it's um, sort of controlled by the atmosphere. But in Antarctica, it's really just controlled by how warm the ocean is. One of the papers in the suite of papers in Nature talks a bit about the impact of ocean swells on those ice shelves as well. So they're getting melted underneath by warm water. There's a whole lot of processes going on? Yes, that's right. So the sea ice acts to protect the ice sheets in a couple of ways. It it keeps the warm waters away from Antarctica to an extent. It creates this cold freshwater cap that can push the warm waters further north. But in this case here is actually dampening ocean waves. So we have this sort of frozen surface of the ocean. You can imagine that doesn't create such an intense swell. Um, so that dampens the waves and that may act to um, help protect some of the sort of ice shelves because ice shelves actually move up and down with the tides and with waves as well. So um, it may actually protect protect it from sort of physical destruction as well as that sort of thermal erosion by warm warm ocean currents. Or conversely in places where the sea ice isn't appearing where it used to appear, perhaps you might get bigger storm-driven swells which might be more damaging. Yes, that's exactly the point. I mean, so when we talk about this overall increase of sea ice around the continent over the last four decades, that's biased to certain regions like the Ross Sea, like the Weddell Sea, and other areas it's actually decreased. So the same thing with where the ice sheets gain and lose mass. We look at where the sea ice is increasing and decreasing. In certain areas, it might actually be very important to have sea ice in one area and not so important in another in terms of where ice sheets will lose their, their volume. So regional change can be very important. It's where is the ice sheet's weak spot and where is that um, sea ice change and how do the two relate? Antarctica is obviously a long way away. Most of us don't get a chance to go there and I think some people tend to think of it as being something down there that's quite separate from the rest of the world. But one of the other things that this suite of nature papers really drives home is that what happens in Antarctica does have an impact elsewhere in the world in the same way that Antarctica is in itself impacted by the rest of the world. That's absolutely right, and the way that it impacts the rest of the world is through sea level, first and foremost, but also through the way that it affects ocean currents and and the atmospheric circulation. So anything that happens in Antarctica um, starts out down in the southern hemisphere, but it works its way up to the northern hemisphere relatively quickly, actually. So as soon as we start changing the ocean currents around Antarctica, they can very quickly have an influence on air temperatures in the northern hemisphere, for example. So it's really important that we sort of understand those connections because as we see increasing melt from Antarctica, that means increasing impacts pretty much across the globe. Can you tell me a bit about your area of research? You are looking back in a way to perhaps anticipate what might happen in future? So we use numerical models to try and simulate periods of the past where we have geological records of what we think happened um, And we use the geological data to to make sure that the numerical models are working correctly. So we're running computer simulations, checking against the geological data that they're giving us a a consistent answer. And then when we've got those models behaving what we think is correctly, we can then use them to predict the future. Um, And usually what we'll do is we'll, we'll try and run numerous scenarios to try and take account of a lot of the uncertainties. 
But what, what I do a lot of these days is run simulations for the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets and see how they're going to evolve under different greenhouse gas emissions um, trajectories over the next century or two. And what kind of things are you seeing? Well, it depends on the scenario, of course. Um, if we mitigate considerably um, and reduce our greenhouse gas emissions uh, in line with the, the Paris Accord, then there's a chance that we can minimise the, uh, the sort of uh, the negative uh, impact of the ice sheet melt. If we follow a path where there is little uh, mitigation, we're going to end up in a, in a world by 2100 with, with much higher sea levels. We'll have a lot more temperature variability across the globe because some areas will be getting cooler because of this meltwater going into the ocean and some areas will be getting uh, amplified warming. So that's going to really uh, throw a spanner in the works. Um, ocean circulation is a big one. When we start melting, for example, the Greenland ice sheet, we put meltwater into the North Atlantic, and that basically slows down the overturning circulation uh, in the North Atlantic. And that's what you know people think of as the Gulf Stream. It takes the warm air from uh, the, the Gulf of Mexico right up to uh, northwest Europe. So it keeps the northern, northern parts of Europe warm. If we slow that down, northwest Europe gets cold. A lot of the heat stays in central USA, so they get even warmer. When was the last time we had a climate that's similar to what we have now and what we're heading into? Well, that's a good question. What, what we can say is that the last time that we had atmospheric CO2 concentrations similar to what we have now, 410 parts per million at the moment, was about three, four, maybe five million years ago. That's a long time ago. And when we look at the geological records uh, from that time, we see a world that was two or three degrees warmer than present as a, as a global average. We see an Antarctic ice sheet that was much smaller than the one we have today. Um, in terms of sea level equivalent, it lost about 10, maybe 15 metres worth of its ice. Um, in total, because the Greenland ice sheet also reduced at that time, global sea levels were maybe as much as 20 metres above present. So... Even though we're not there yet, that kind of gives us a window in what the, the long-term response might be to these levels of CO2. Now, you had an involvement in one of the papers in this suite of papers. Do you want to tell me about that? So that paper looked at the Andril uh, sediment core from the Ross Sea. And what they showed by looking at the sediments and looking at the, the geochemical signatures in those sediments was that the, the sediment that was accumulating hadn't been exposed um, to, the, uh, to the sky. It hadn't accumulated cosmic uh, rays, basically. But the point about that was that it, it suggested that um, there hadn't been large-scale retreat of the grounded ice in East Antarctica for at least the last sort of five to eight million years. The only retreat that had occurred was... Um, areas that were grounded below sea levels. The ocean was warmer and some of the marine embayments had opened up uh, and, and led to some of the retreat that maybe we, we might see in the future. But the implication is that we need to go to a, a warmer climate that's even warmer than um, that period, sort of five million years ago, before we'll start seeing retreat of the grounded ice in, in East Antarctica. The worrying thing is that if we follow the... Uh, greenhouse gas emissions pathway that we're currently on, 
then we will actually get to that point and we will get to a point where we do start seeing uh, loss of grounded ice from East Antarctica. And then that takes us into uh, a scenario which we haven't seen in the last five to eight million years. So we're really heading into uncharted territory, really. It's important to remember that the smaller West Antarctic ice sheet is marine-based, while what Nick has been talking about is the larger land-based East Antarctic ice sheet. It's an ice sheet that retreated no, no further than onto its land-based margin. So it retreated out of the oceans, it had its toes dipping into the oceans, but it retreated out of that potentially as recently as 100,000 years ago. Um, the amount of ice that's actually sitting on the Earth's surface below sea level, so it's still an ice sheet, it's sitting on the Earth's surface, but it's below sea level, is over 20 metres in Antarctica. It's about 22 metres. And that ice there potentially is quite quite unstable in these marginally warmer than present climates. So... Certainly two to three degrees warmer than present, like we had three million years ago, that 400 parts per million CO2 world, we suspect we lost a lot of that marine-based ice sheet. And that's the big concern, is how sensitive is that marine-based ice. We see this acceleration in the recent satellite measurements, about three millimetres over the last five years. It can be orders of magnitude higher than that, potentially, as we know from geological records. We can see up to a metre per century coming out of ice sheet retreats during the last time we had a major climate warming event on this planet. So we're trying to work out how much of the ice currently on the planet is capable of retreat rates that quickly. We're seeing some big icebergs break off, some big blocks of ice shelves. Well, we've actually seen whole ice shelves pretty much explode over the the space of a few weeks. Um, The Larsen B ice shelf in 2002 um, had a lot of surface meltwater that penetrated into crevasses on the ice shelf surface. That water sunk because it's denser than ice, and so it pushed those crevasses apart, and it literally literally exploded. And what happened there was it didn't raise sea level, but as Nick was talking about, it creates this this plug. It um, slows down the grounded ice sheet behind it from flowing into the ocean. And those glaciers sped up by a factor of eight once that ice shelf retreated. So the more we see these icebergs carve, and sometimes iceberg carves just for natural, natural events, that's how ice sheets lose their mass naturally. But if we see an acceleration of that carving, then that becomes a, a warning bell for us that these protective ice shelves may be contributing in the long term to see them rise through that process of speeding up the glaciers behind it. The more we hear about this complexity of what's going on in Antarctica, but also its sensitivity, it seems to me that warning bells really are ringing, that if we need to do something, we should be doing it sooner rather than later. Well, yeah, I think the, the best time to do something was several decades ago, to be honest. The key thing that we haven't really talked about here is this idea of committed change and The idea here is that we're putting in place um, a bunch of things which are going to manifest a lot uh, further down the line. So we're we're putting gases into the atmosphere that are changing the atmosphere and um, leading to sort of an accumulation of heat in the atmosphere now. But a lot of that heat, pretty much um, 93% of that heat is getting sequestered into the, the ocean and it's getting into the deeper layers of the ocean. Now, the the result of that is that we're sort of somewhat buffered when we just look at air temperature measurements. We're not really seeing the, the, the full scale of what's happening. But, of course, the ice sheets, as Rob's described, the, the Antarctic ice sheet, a lot of it is sitting in that ocean water. In some cases, it's a kilometre or more below sea level. So when you start warming the ocean through its entire water column, then all that heat then goes into the ice sheet. And what that means is that the changes 
that are going to happen to the ice sheet will carry on for a long, long time because it's impossible to get the heat out of the ocean. Once it's in there, it's going to stay there. So what we're seeing now in terms of the Antarctic ice sheet response is just the beginning of something that we're already committed to. So we're seeing this committed change that will be ongoing. The question now is what we can do to reduce further commitments. Okay, so we may be committed to another few tens of centimetres of sea level rise over the next century or two if we stop all emissions. If we continue to emit, then those commitments just keep getting bigger. And that's the real concern. And ultimately, we will commit the planet to multimeter sea level rise over the next centuries to millennia. And that's a moral problem. The commitment doesn't just come down to total magnitude or, or height of sea level rise. You know, a few tens of centimetres we can probably manage if it's over a long time scale. But if those rates are quick, then that becomes a major issue for infrastructure and how the natural sort of coral reef systems will adapt to sea level rise. They can adapt to slow sea level rise. They can't adapt to rapid sea level rise. So not just constraining the total magnitude, but seeing if we can slow this down somehow. And that provides better options for us to mitigate and adapt to it. Thanks, Rob. That was Rob Mackay, and we also heard from Nick Gollidge. They are both in the Antarctic Research Centre at Victoria University of Wellington. Their colleague, Tim Naish, was co-author on a paper in the Antarctic-themed issue of the journal Nature, written from the perspective of someone 50 years in the future. Titled Choosing the Future, it outlines what could happen to Antarctica if we fail to take significant action to curb climate change. If carbon emissions continue on the present trajectory and the world climate continues to warm. It contrasts this with a rather more optimistic outlook in which the global community take ambitious action to limit greenhouse gas emissions. You can find links to this and all the Antarctic papers in the recent edition of Nature at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Kate Fakaronga mai kwe ki tō tātou ao horihori ki te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. You're with Our Changing World on RNZ. I'm Alison Balance, and now it's time for some wasp talk. Introduced social wasps are a big problem in New Zealand, especially in the honeydew beech forests in the northern half of the South Island. Ecologically, they are bad news, which is why the Biological Heritage Science Challenge has a research programme focusing on them. The researchers are getting close to finishing sequencing the genomes of the common and German wasps, and I catch up with Phil Lester from Victoria University of Wellington and Peter Dearden from the University of Otago to find out why they're doing it and what stage they're at. We have some of the highest wasp densities here in the world. We, we have up to 40 nests per hectare in our South Island beech forest, each of those with five to 10,000 workers in them. That's a massive number of wasps. Our wasps, uh, the biomass of wasps exceeds that of the native birds, the introduced mammals, all those things down there. That's a massive issue. What have you been doing when it comes to the genome of wasps? Well, we, we have two species, don't we? Yeah, we do. We have uh, German wasps and common wasps. We started with the, with the common wasp because it's common, um, and we thought actually one thing that is required if we're going to develop new methods of control for these species is to understand its genome. So um, I guess it was about a year ago we started sequencing the genome with a, with a set of techniques to try and 
take all the information we can from the genetics of this animal and stick it all into into one sort of database so we can work out what genes it has and what kind of um, genetic underpinning of its society and its and its behaviour might be. About halfway through the process, it occurred to, to Phil in particular that we probably need to do the German wasp as well because these these wasps seem to be sort of able to replace each other ecologically. So if we kill all the common wasps, then we'll just get more German wasps. So we've more recently just uh, sequenced that genome as well. Are insect genomes difficult to sequence? Really depends on the insect. So there are some really horribly large and nasty insect genomes. It turns out that the Hymenoptera, the group that contains wasps and bees and ants, have really quite small compact genomes. So that's helped us enormously. Um, We've uh, very easily produced a genome of of these two species, whereas we're still struggling with things like um, Argentine stem weevils, which have much larger and more repetitive genomes. What stage are you at? For the common wasp, we now have an almost chromosome-level assembly, which means we've got almost all of the DNA base pairs in the order that they are in each of the 25 chromosomes that that species had. The German wasp, we were a little bit further behind. But the next step is actually to start predicting what genes are in the genome and what those genes might do. And so we've done a little bit of that, trying to work out are there bits of shared biology we can understand from perhaps bees or, or related insects, or are there things which we can see which are very specific to, to wasps themselves. So that's the process you call annotation. That's right, yes. So we're, we're annotating, which is um, always kind of dull, but it's the bit that needs to be done to identify the really cool bits of biology we want to get at. So once this is done, Phil, what's it going to enable us mm-hmm. to do? Many different things. So um, right from the very theoretical, you know, what are genes, these genes do, how to um, use social behaviours, the social behaviours of wasps and bees and ants develop in these populations, all the way through to the spectrum of, well, OK, if we want to control them, perhaps by something like a gene drive process, what genes would we target and how would we do that? The other great thing is it gives us the opportunity to look at diversity in genomes. Invasive insects are really interesting. These, these insects appear to have come into the country a small number of times and then spread enormously. It's going to be really interesting to look at what their genomes look like across the whole species in New Zealand and compare that with, the, with their range where they come from in, in Europe. So once we've got a full genome, we can then skim sequence the genomes of, of other individuals, so relatively cheaply get a, an understanding of their full genome sequence without having to assemble and annotate again. We can just kind of line it up and say, what are the genetic variations? So we can start doing population genomics to understand how these things are so invasive and are there bits of diversity in New Zealand that are different from overseas that we might be able to attack. So at the moment you've just sequenced specimens from New Zealand? That's right. In fact, Phil's given us all the specimens. They're all, all yeah. from New Zealand. So we... lots of them, but, but we do have um, some from uh, Belgium as well. So we have some data from Belgium on, on specimens that were collected there in the native range. So we can do a little bit of uh, comparison at least on the transcriptome, you know, how these genes are translated as, as well as in New Zealand. So comparison between what genes are expressed in the home range and what they're doing here and all those sorts of things in between. To be perfectly honest, in fact, we sequenced the genome of a common wasp and a German wasp. The point being that actually as soon as you get genetic diversity, that makes it much more difficult to assemble. So we actually have the genome of a a common wasp, which I I like to call Bob. We typically sequence um, male pupae. Of course. Yeah, Yeah, we have to see because they are wasps and bees and ants and things have an odd genetic makeup where males are haploid, they have one set of chromosomes, females are diploid, they have two sets and that complicates it. So we just focus on the males. This 
project actually is sort of falling under a larger umbrella of genomic research in New Zealand called Genomics Aotearoa. The idea of that is to start to use genomics better for New Zealand with, with outcomes in health and in primary production and in, in conservation. This is a really interesting sort of leading project here because we have the opportunity of going straight from understanding the genome to starting to develop tools for control of this, of this species. So that group, while it's not really, it doesn't really aim at um, sequencing lots of genomes, what it does do is try and develop new technologies that enable us to get genomes faster or genomes for species where, where things are difficult. So one of the approaches we've taken um, in this particular project is, is a technology called HiC, which enabled us to take all of the sequences that we found and ask where they are, are they next to each other in the genome, which is how we've managed to get that almost chromosome level assembly. So it's been great to, to be able to, to be involved in a project where not only can we try new technologies and new ideas, but also that they probably have an impact relatively rapidly on our, in the way we might control wasps. And so, so that's really important as well for the National Science Challenge and the Biological Heritage Program, where we're looking at novel pest control technologies, and, and that collaboration with Genomics ATRO is really useful along those lines. We can, we can really develop something here, not necessarily on gene drives, but gene drives would be a possible outcome, but also on gene silencing, all those sorts of things that are a genome is essential for these programs. Really, really important first step. Thanks, Phil. Phil Lester is at Victoria University of Wellington and is leading a biological heritage science challenge program tackling the WASP problem. Peter Dearden is at the University of Otago. He is also director of Genomics Aotearoa, a genetics collaboration that was formed last year between a number of New Zealand institutions. And that's it for tonight. But to listen to those stories again, or to have a browse through our great audio archive, just head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. We are, of course, also a podcast, which you can subscribe to at Apple Podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, Radio Public and Spotify. We hang out on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Thanks for listening. I'm Alison Balance, and I'll be back next week with more stories about science and the environment. But until then, bye for now. Hey corner mai. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.